like, <laughs> I was expecting someone to get Good evening. Evening, afternoon rather. Can everyone hear me okay? Hopefully you didn't hear that mistake and I can I can start again. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. James Brooks and I'm the Melanie Trent DeShutter Library Director here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture and I'm delighted to welcome you to this noontime lecture. We wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Anne Worrell who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan nation that inhabited the land where the museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and to maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, its present, and indeed its future. Of course, today is also the final day of Native American History Month in which we call attention to the culture, traditions, and achievements of this land's original inhabitants and the integral role in society that their descendants play to this day. It is a time to contemplate the history, sovereignty, and self-determination of indigenous people, past and present. And we've been proud this year to partner with the tribes of Virginia uh, throughout the month and, and throughout the year more broadly, hosting the Pocahontas Reframed Film Festival and the Virginia Tribal Education Consortium and look forward to building upon these important foundations. Before we begin with today's talk, I just wanna let you know about one forthcoming event. So our next in-person lecture will take place at noon on December 14th, when Dr. John Ragosta, historian in Jefferson studies at Monticello, will be here to speak about how Patrick Henry developed the notion of loyal opposition that anyone contesting federal policy must seek reform in, quote, a constitutional way. And before we begin with today's program, I'd just like to give you a reminder to please turn off your mobile phones or to switch them to silent or do not disturb mode. Today's talk will follow Virginia's native peoples and European colonists as they crossed emerging boundaries, whether they be fortifications, laws, or property lines that surrounded developing English plantations in the 17th century Chesapeake Bay. Algonquins had cultivated ties to one another and others beyond the region by canoe and road for centuries. And these networks defined the watery Chesapeake landscapes, even as Virginia and Maryland planters put up fences, policed unfree laborers and native neighbors and dispatched land surveyors. Using native trade routes and places, and often with the help and knowledge of indigenous people, escaping indentured and enslaved people could abscond with their own developing alternative ideas about freedom and connection. Dr. Jessica Lauren Taylor is here today to talk about how native land provided the setting for early resistance for, to colonialism. And she's also going to talk about new efforts that are taking place to document this history. Jessica is an assistant professor in Virginia Tech's history department and is active in public history, collaborating on projects across the Southeast as diverse as oral histories with boat builders, augmented reality tours of historic sites and reconstructed maps of colonial landscapes. She is the author of Plain Paths and Dividing Lines, Native Land and Water in the 17th Century Chesapeake 
recently published, available in our shop for purchase after this talk, and also the subject of today's talk. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Jessica Lauren Taylor. Hi folks, and thank you so much for being here today. Um, this has been just a, a really uh, wonderful, um, very calming, um, lovely couple of hours in Richmond with you all so far. Um, I want to introduce myself first. Um, I'm actually uh, first and foremost an oral and public historian, which means that I sit down with people from all walks of life. And um, briefly, there was mentioned boat builders, but also farmers and drugstore owners, um, government workers, all kinds of folks who uh, talk about their lives actually primarily in Eastern Virginia um, and uh, all the way out uh, to Richmond. And um, I've done that in Nantucket and, and Appalachia as well, but um, Eastern Virginia, I think, is uh, special um, for a few key reasons. Um, the first is that oftentimes we talk about a lot of the same families in the 17th and 18th centuries that still are with us in the 20th and 21st centuries, those family names uh, for uh, Black and white and Indigenous people whose families have been here for hundreds of years. Um, and in talking with descendants from um, black and white and indigenous families um, all the way uh, going back a decade now, I've noticed that a lot of history is, is fundamentally local. Um, people like watermen who have spent six decades on the water know the names of all of the guts and ditches and they pass those on to their children. Um, and it's in this kind of way that uh, local knowledge becomes um, so important and um, be, frames the way that people uh, think about uh, think about their lives. And, and this is especially the case on the coast. Um, so um, one of the cool things about uh, my work as well uh, in working primarily with uh, local historical societies um, and with um, people that just want to document, their history is that I also get to work with material culture and archeologists. And that also helps us um, further understand and kind of verify the things that oral historians say and um, or people who are giving oral histories say. Um, and uh, one of the great things about archeologists is that um, they understand better than historians and a lot of other people that history is deposited in layers. So, um, you know, two inches down, they find a VHS tape from the 1980s, which is a, a real artifact now. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of folks um, in my classes don't know what a VHS tape is. And then they go down um, a couple inches more, and then there's their Civil War button, and then a couple inches more, maybe a foot more, I don't know. And then there's a Revolutionary War button. And then underneath all of those layers um, is indigenous history before you hit subsoil. Um, underneath everything, um, on, on top of which the foundation for everything is indigenous history. And part of the way that um, we understand that colonialism works is that it is actually built on indigenous landscapes. Um, so uh, one of the cool uh, things I like to show my students is this map. Uh, this is actually a, another project that we have going on at Tech Now to try to map some of the routes in major towns in um, everything uh, Richmond West. 
um, in what is now Suwon speaking land um, or uh, basically uh, Virginia, South Carolina, North Carolina, um, all the way into West Virginia. Do any of those places look familiar to you? I see some nods. <laughs> Usually the guy in the back of the class yells 81, um, Highway 81, but uh, maybe not <laughs> Maybe not in, uh, in this particular auditorium. Um, you might also see dots that are where Roanoke and Salem are, where a lot of my students are from. And it's important for us to recognize that these places are, um, we're indigenous first, and, and you've probably heard the, um, the particular uh, battle cry over the last decade that this land is native land. That is, that is true. And in addition to that, colonial spaces are actually placed on top of indigenous places with some intentionality. Um, and let me kind of explain what I, what I mean by that. Um, <clears throat> so while historians tend to focus on how um, English or European mindsets and patterns of life are replicated or changed in the Chesapeake, my central argument here um, addresses the question of what happens when colonists encounter native networks, as well as native cultures and native societies, first and foremost. I find this explains a lot of the violence that happened during the colonial period, but also to make sense of the ways in which indigenous people survived the colonial period, despite the odds stacked against them, especially in the second half of the 17th century. What I came down to is that indigenous people had power disproportionate to their numbers because they were able to keep these networks that I just showed you alive and they were able to keep the knowledge of the Chesapeake alive. And then that allowed them to transgress a lot of colonial boundaries that were being put in place um, during uh, colonial administrations of even the most energetic Virginia governors um, like Sir William Barclay um, in the 17th century. So we have sort of a little bit of a back and forth in the 17th century uh, between uh, Virginia indigenous people um, and elite colonists, um, and then non-elite colonists also enter this in particular ways. Um, so over the, the next half hour or so, I wanna sort of talk to you a little bit about first of all, this process, um, the, the process that sort of um, under, under uh, girds my entire book, uh, but also the, the next project that we're doing that ties in uh, native places, native resistance, native landscape with um, non-elite people like uh, enslaved people and servants who ran away a lot of times and further undermined uh, what uh, elite colonists were doing by running away, by stealing their own labor, um, but by doing it using native roads um, or um, by using the same waterways that native people used. Um, so to begin, I like to really talk about um, the role of some of these elite families whose names are still all over Eastern Virginia today. And I'm talking about the Birds and the Scarboroughs um, and the Wests. Um, on the Virginian side of things, elites were not doing the colonial government um, any favors. Um, although any, a lot of them were actually di directly involved in local uh, as well as colonial government in multiple ways across multiple decades, they were also transgressing 
a lot of the colonial boundaries that they were themselves setting. And meanwhile, non-elite people who were in bondage, these are people um, who were enslaved or indentured or something in between, as well as people who were in debt or people who did not share the wealth or uh, the religion that was uh, associated with the colony. Um, they are uninterested in supporting the colonial project and oftentimes are running away to Maryland and the Carolinas, even as we're um, increasingly understanding to the Dutch colonies and uh, the, the Swedish colonies. All of that did not help uh, the stability of the early colonial period. And that leads us to iconic conflicts like Bacon's Rebellion in 1676. So just like we wouldn't expect the, uh, oops, wrong way. <laughs> so just like we wouldn't expect that English colonial subjects were united as one, um, English colonial subjects were divided by religion, they were divided by class, they were divided by political difference, divided by personal ambition and just personal dislike for one another. Um, the same thing is actually true for indigenous people. Algonquian speaking people from many nations were prominent in the Chesapeake uh, before colonization and, and after. Um, Algonquian, uh, just in case you're you know, not familiar, uh, is uh, the language family that most people spoke in the Chesapeake, not all, but most. Uh, many groups were consolidated under a chief or a werewance, uh, which is the name for a chief and for a woman, it's uh, werewanskwa. And uh, these are people who consolidated authority in the late 16th century, over 30 something districts uh, across the Chesapeake, which amounted to tens of thousands of people. And you can see some of uh, those inside of John Smith's map of Virginia here. Uh, the Powhatan chiefdom was uh, among the most powerful of these. Um, and this is during this time period and that starts to take place um, right before English colonists show up as you all know in 1607. The, the chief of the Powhatan chiefdom, which most people know as Pocahontas's dad, um, whose real name was Wahan Seneca, um, most people um, were uh, in some kind of relationship with him, either a tributary relationship or some kind of friendship or um, maybe enmity, loose alliance. Uh, most Algonquian people inside of the chiefdom shared some things in common up and down the East Coast, and Algonquian people lived far beyond the Chesapeake as well. Uh, most were accustomed to being on the water um, every day, and, and um, this is actually um, one of the, the earliest maps of these half moons were sort of the uh, Algonquian settlements, and you can see that they're primarily just associated with the rivers. And um, these are, uh, just like English people are, a very water-centric people. Uh, the bay and the rivers provided sustenance as well as transportation, but also communication networks paths to trade and alliance. Um, so most were accustomed to being on the water, probably some archeologists estimate a two minute walk away from the water uh, in most settlements. And they're also very well networked. Um, we know uh, from the indigenous roads that became roads during the colonial period and then uh, that we use today that they were incredibly well networked into the continent. And archeologists have since actually uncovered that copper from the Great Lakes region made it to the Powhatans. Uh, goods from probably the Spanish speaking world were actually documented by English colonists when they first arrived. So those probably came from the Gulf of Mexico, maybe Florida, uh, perhaps uh, as far away as South America. 
So we know that these are incredibly knowledgeable as well as well-connected people, despite the fact that they're on the periphery of the continent. Let me go back to John Smith here. So when John Smith comes with leaders like Lord Delaware and John West, that set of leaders who were very adept at military conquest, remember they had taken part in military conquests in Ireland uh, and in the Netherlands against the Catholics, and they set out to map and survey the Powhatan chiefdom uh, where they ended up smack dab in the middle of the Powhatan chiefdom at what is now Jamestown today. The English in cultivating relationships with the Powhatans were not particularly respectful of what the Powhatans considered to be reciprocal relationships. The English understood that they were dependent on the Powhatans, not just for food, which is what we as historians oftentimes emphasize, but also knowledge of the continent itself, knowledge of how to just get around. And John Smith made very clear, and, and you can almost kind of sense his discomfort a little bit with the ways in which people, first of all, were always watching what the English were doing, but always anticipating their movements and always guiding them across the Chesapeake, um, either by water primarily or uh, across overland roads. Uh, so the English response is to try to gain control over these communication networks because they understood that that was where a lot of power actually comes from. Uh, they had been, uh, for example, especially in Ireland, uh, mapping Ireland um, down to individual villages because they understood that as part of the way to conquer a people. In fact, I don't know if any of you all know the story of the Queen's last mapmaker. Um, I think his name was Robert Bartlett, a very famous mapmaker, one of the most uh, precise in uh, all of England, was actually beheaded by the Irish. Uh, so that, and this is the quote, um, so that they, he would not take their, their country from them. Um, so maps like this, uh, we understand are, are fantastic primary sources, uh, but for people who are being colonized, they're also expressions of desire, sort of a self-fulfilling, hopefully self-fulfilling prophecy, um, where you see what you consider to be, as we see on the in the top there, Virginia. <laughs> but it's not really yet, is it? Um, it's still where Wacomico or the Powhatan chiefdom. Um, so map making, surveilling, gathering information is a really key piece of the colonial project during this point. So they're trying to take over these communication networks um, and um, they set out to find divisions as well inside of the Powhatan chiefdoms, for example, to try to trade with one group and not another um, and to sort of start a war of intelligence uh, in these early years. So the Powhatans fought back as the English tried to expand the tobacco economy, expand trade up the rivers past Algonquin control uh, into Monacan or Eastern Suwon speaking territory. Historians theorize a lot of different things about whether or not uh, the Powhatans intended to wipe the Englishmen off the face of the map. Uh, but the truth is that uh, the English actually did offer a lot to the Powhatans in terms of trade goods and potential allyship. But in 1622, uh, uh, the Powhatan leader named Opakonkano, who replaced uh, Pocahontas's dad, Wahun Seneca, um, 
uh, in the course of a few hours on an April morning, wiped out a quarter of the Virginia population, uh, all basically a coordinated attack up and down the James River, uh, which you see here. And it was an effort that he replicated again in 1644. And both of those attacks did start major wars. Um, the reason uh, that uh, the Powhatans were able to make this happen is because the Algonquians had been in the homes of Englishmen daily and they had been surveilling and trading with them uh, every day. And so there's this dependence that Englishmen have on Algonquians over time, on the food they provide, um, on trade, even on their labor. And uh, this was actually part of the reason for the devastation that followed these attacks. So not only did a quarter of the colonists die, but the reputation of the Virginia Company, uh, which started Virginia, funded Virginia, was ruined. Uh, the company dissolved in 1624, and uh, the Virginia economy itself uh, did shrink. Um, it, and it also physically shrunk the footprint for the English um, for years. Uh, so over decades, and, and the wars between 1622 and 1632, and 1644 and 1646, uh, this sort of kind of warfare uh, was really brutal and it shaped both societies. Um, the English had had a practice run, as I said, in Ireland, um, and they had practiced what uh, in, in Virginia, what they called feed fights, which sounds like it's a cafeteria sort of thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, what they would do is wait for Algonquian women's cornfields uh, to be ready to harvest and then go and burn them or go and uh, take the corn and then uh, burn them. And that would push uh, Algonquian families, Powhatan families uh, into the woods uh, to forage for themselves for the rest of the region. Uh, the reason that I, that I bring this up is because it shifts some key things in the relationship between um, the Powhatans and, and the English, um, but also relationships inside of those two respective groups. Um, which, as I said, are quite diverse and divided. Um, in this in this initial 10-year period, Algonquians and English uh, fought one another, but English people who were trading and raiding were actually becoming wealthy from doing that. Um, so one of the historians that I've cited here, uh, James Rice, suggests that the majority of the labor pool during this period was owned by just 12 men. And a lot of those folks were people who were getting wealthy from raiding and trading, depending on who it was, with indigenous people um, or trading indigenous goods. Um, and meanwhile, Opakonkano is captured in 1646, and that is the end of the Powhatan chiefdom as the English first knew it. Um, but my thought here is that even though these are the parameters of the new relationship between English people and native people in Virginia, um, their power continues to last. Uh, so in 1646, the remaining uh, Powhatan nations took tributary status, which continues today. Um, I'm sure if you all live in Richmond, you're aware of the tribute uh, that I think actually happened last week on Thanksgiving, um, every year since 1680. Um, I see some nods. <laughs> um, so every year, the, the, uh, some representatives of Virginia Indian nations come and give the governor usually a deer on Thanksgiving. Um, but um, in 1646 is when that tributary status starts. Uh, Barclay also understood that indigenous people who were traveling through English settlements, making a habit of it, 
creating that intimacy, crossing those boundaries, that that was the threat. And he put into place, and, and this was part of not just him, but a, a larger colonial agreement, uh, put in place parameters around um, you can only come into an English settlement if you have a certain kind of striped coat on. And later it's a silver badge or a, a, a some kind of metal badge. Or uh, you can't come within three miles without that, or you may get uh, shot. Uh, so uh, these are the kinds of uh, initial um attempts to create social boundaries that are created. But English people and indigenous people over time ignore new rules around mobility, especially as English people begin to come north of the York River, and I'll turn your attention to the map, um, into huge swaths of former indigenous territory. In the 1650s, there's an enormous land push. These people basically had uh, laid claims to thousands of acres at a time and were gathering up land in what's now the Middle Peninsula and uh, the Northern Neck. Then uh, comes at the same time an increasing number of indentured servants and enslaved people who are also uh, coming into the colony. And um, that does, uh, especially when it comes to enslaved people, include indigenous people as well. Uh, my students are always really surprised to hear that it's estimated around 50,000 indigenous people were enslaved up into the uh, 18th century. Um, and uh, for a while, Charleston, South Carolina actually exported more people than they imported. Uh, so this is Virginia does take part in, in this trade in the 17th and 18th century. Uh, it's particularly people that are coming from inside of the continent um, and then basically east, um, and they're traded in uh, due to a lot of the instability that's created by colonization in the inside of the continent. Uh, so uh, this is what um, these settled areas kind of look like during this time period. Um, uh, this shows where uh, English control um, kind of was and, and where um, where indigenous settlements are is in blue. And historians and archeologists have sort of described this as a checkerboard pattern rather than um, what we're used to seeing in textbooks where we say that indigenous people are pushed west or pushed north. It's actually people coexisting in sort of discrete settlements that shift around over time as indigenous people are pushed into different areas, um, not necessarily all west um, instead. Uh, you'll see here that they're pushed to the interior of peninsulas. So they sort of lose some of that access that they had to water, that immediate access. But many of them, particularly the Mattapanine Pamunkey, which you all know have had reservations since the middle of the 17th century, uh, maintain some of um, that ability to get to uh, water. Um, so... Um, the other thing that I also want to point out about things like this is that English people were actually looking for indigenous land. In they would say, for example, oh, I see women's cornfields and it's already cleared, so I guess I'll settle there. Or they would say, I see some indigenous cabins, so that must be a good place to set up. And they do that there. So what we see is essentially people replacing indigenous places rather than wiping them out completely. And they're oftentimes using those same indigenous paths and, and later roads that are um, still also used by indigenous people. So there's still daily contact, but there's still the ability to keep native networks alive well into the 17th and 18th centuries. 
So this is a map by a Dutch mariner named Augustine Herman. And you can see some of the indigenous towns that are in uh, that sort of uh, swampy area there. Uh, but those are probably not the only ones. Those are just the ones that are on the interiors of the peninsula um, that uh, you can, um, that he would have seen because he's just familiar with where he would have traded. Um, so um, I, I do want to take a moment to talk a little bit about, and I'm, I realize I'm not leaving enough uh, time for the second half here, um, but I want to talk for a second about why this is so, so important for violence in the 17th century. So I'm sure you all are familiar with Bacon's Rebellion, right? Um, and the reason that I started um, this discussion with um, talking about local history and talking about local people is because Bacon's Rebellion is one of many conflicts that starts uh, partially because of these sorts of settlement patterns, partially because of English dependence, but also partially because of elite instigation of fear and um, concern among colonists. Um, so Bacon's Rebellion started with just a couple of local instances of violence that escalated very quickly. The most important of these is that uh, some Susquehannocks were killed by colonists who were actually chasing someone else and the Susquehannocks decided um, to retaliate. And that caused a lot of fear more broadly across the, the Northern and Western parts of the Virginia colony. Uh, that escalated because Nathaniel Bacon, who lost an indentured servant probably to a Susquehannock tack, uh, was able to bring together him and, and lots of other people, uh, enslaved people, indentured servants, but also elites uh, to run rampant all over Eastern Virginia and indeed into the interior. So coming after the Okanichi Fort, uh, for example, who were major trading partners, coming after the tributary friendly indigenous people in, um, in you know, what's now Pamunkey and Mattapanai territory, um, and then also burning Jamestown to the ground. And part of the reason he was able to do this is because he was harnessing people's fear of indigenous people. And, and that was something that Susquehannock people were um, probably, you know, fine with causing instability. Um, but this was a this was a strategy that elite people had been using over decades. This was actually uh, an old school sort of way of for elites to try to kind of get what they want. And a, a really good example of this, and, and uh, let me see if I can um, slide through here. Um, this is a picture of the, here, I'll go back to, go back to this one so you can see it better. Um, a really good example of this is uh, Kent Island. Um, so uh, Kent Island, uh, does anyone know where that is? Like what state it's in? Maryland. Well, if you're in Virginia and it's the 1630s, you think it's in Virginia. <laughs> um, so Kent Island was actually an incredibly important, um, an incredibly important trading post for William Claiborne, who was one of the traders and raiders that I talked about that went against the Powhatans. He became uh, very good at at making war against the Powhatans, but also trading up and down the bay. He had trading partners in the Susquehannocks in uh, the upper bay at Kent Island. But then the Marylanders who came on the Ark and the Dove, as you all know, in the 1630s uh, said that that was theirs. 
And what Claiborne did was actually start to turn uh, indigenous people and the Marylanders against one another. And people who were allied with the Marylanders actually tried to do the same, to say that the Spanish are coming to attack or the indigenous people are going to come attack you. Um, and in doing so, they actually caused real violence. The Marylanders and the Virginians went to war in the bay by ship uh, and killed each other over Kent Island, uh, which Maryland eventually won. I guess it's a long game. You know, they have it now. But um, <laughs> for the uh, at the time, it was it was a really scary and deadly game that was based in, in intelligence networks, communication networks, but also indigenous power because what they wanted was trade with the Susquehannocks, not necessarily just the island itself. Um, so what's really incredible about this is that this is a pattern that's repeated again and again. And what ends up happening is, uh, especially in the case of Bacon's Rebellion, where there's been an economic depression in the 1660s, 1670s, um, is it's incredibly expensive. Um, so when uh, Claiborne starts fighting with the Marylanders, the governor of Virginia has to get involved. When um, other people invade indigenous lands saying they were going to attack us first, everybody else has to go get their guns and, and their drums and their whole militia and go out and help the Virginians fight this native threat. In 1676, that becomes a little bit too much as Barclay sets up forts. He uh, gets all of the um, all of his royalists involved, trying to get uh, dislodged Bacon from um, from power. Over time, the, it creates these tensions that really just a few people are are creating. Um, so that's just one of my really favorite examples there. Uh, but overall. Um, I, I think um, the reason that uh, this needs to add to our understanding of what Bacon's Rebellion is, is because as a strategy of what Bacon does is, is go against what indigenous people are saying, um, or they are, he is saying that they are a threat, um, that um, they are actually not, and it's a very old-fashioned strategy by this point, although the Susquehannocks are, are obviously a much uh, larger threat. <clears throat> So increasingly, historians are looking at how indigenous people have thrived past the point of Bacon's Rebellion, redefining their relationship with the Commonwealth. Um, it's a handful of elite people who are looking to co-op native knowledge and uh, make it their own, who are oftentimes driving this violent in in instability. And the rather ambitious outer English borders and expensive violence which follows undermines uh, the whole colonial project. Um, but I also want to emphasize that just as people understood at the time, servant and enslaved resistance to colonization is inextricably tied to native resistance to colonization and the ongoing native use of native land. And so I want to talk a little bit about a project that we're currently working on uh, across different universities in the state that is actually really exciting and I'm hoping will involve uh, a lot of public and K-12 engagement. Uh, so uh, this year, we're looking at a three-county area in the Northern Neck, which you see highlighted there. We are working with Library of Virginia to digitize uh, three counties' worth of court records to look for evidence of people who tried to escape servitude and slavery, uh, or that, that sort of uh, in-between status, and were caught and brought back to court. 
And they're, as their cases are explained, we start to understand things about who they ran away with, where they were going, how long they were gone, uh, even sometimes the sorts of paths they took. And that gives us a lot of information about how non-elite people, especially people who might have been um, indigenous and bonded or um, people who ran away in big groups, we can see how they're networked with one another and, and maybe even how they understood slavery and freedom, how they understood what a different future outside of the Virginia colony might look like. Uh, I love these accounts for a few key reasons. One of the most important for me is that I think my students in particular come into this conversation and I had them working with these documents just to, just to try it out this semester. They have this idea of what running away from slavery and indentured servitude looks like. They have this idea of someone uh, running away through the woods um, by themselves just impulsively and um, they're being chased by dogs or maybe even they think about the Underground Railroad in ways that might foreground someone who um, is sort of running the Underground Railroad rather than the people that are actually uh, trying to escape. Instead, uh, when we actually look at these really cool documents, we see really amazing stuff. This is one of my favorites. Uh, this is someone who had actually testified in someone else's runaway case, had actually been involved in a, in a different case a couple of years before, and decided to take a different strategy. Uh, he took a book to speak the Indian tongue. It's probably some little translation document and a bolt of cloth probably to trade. And he was going to try, we presume, to find native people to take him out of the colony. But that that last sentence, the wherefore should we stay here and be slaves and make when we may go to another place and live like gentlemen is an incredibly bold and really cool statement, especially for my students to read, to see that they're thinking in terms of slavery and freedom in 1638. And this is a white man uh, who is thinking about what his status means as things like race and slavery develop in the 17th century. The other reason that I think it's really amazing is because we can see the ways in which people are talking about their futures. So one group, and if there's time at the end, I'll talk a little bit more about them, uh, just decided to try to escape to Venice. Uh, they stole a boat, a small boat. We know it was small because they had oars and uh, tried to make it to Venice. I don't know um, if they were going to maybe meet up with a different larger ship or something like that, um, but it was just a group of teenagers that thought that that might work out. <laughs> um, and uh, the other thing that I think is really interesting is the, the sort of networks of maybe not friendship, but alliance that developed during this time period. Um, there are a lot of really young people that run away. Um, some of them are actually... Um, uh, don't even speak English. So there's a Dutch boy um, who presumably doesn't speak English because he's repeatedly identified uh, just as the Dutch boy, <laughs> uh, runs away repeatedly um, to a nearby Ind Indian settlement. And um, we also see um, indigenous people, uh, uh, Africans and uh, Scottish, Dutch, English, people of European descent getting together to run away so much so that there are actually laws that are passed that strengthen penalties against white servants who run away with black servants or enslaved people. 
So there's uh, racial politics that are actually created through the process of so many people running away using these new networks that they're creating. And, uh, and, and finally, um, the ways in which um, people are changing the relationships between indigenous people and the English colonies. So increasingly in, in agreements with indigenous people, indigenous people have to promise to return uh, enslaved people other kinds of runaways that come to uh, native towns. The, I'll be the first to admit that the evidence of people running away to native towns is very sparse. Those accounts are very few and far between, but it is consistently showing up in some of these agreements that tells us that it, it probably was a threat that English officials are thinking through. Uh, so one of the cool, uh, cooler accounts that really shows us the breadth of ways that things are possible in this time period is uh, Constantine Monahattan, who was actually some kind of either enslaved person or servant to William Claiborne, who I just talked about with Kent Island. And you can see Kent Island there. Uh, so this was a gentleman who may have run away, but may have sort of been on this, this cusp between breaking the, the rules and not. He, so he was supposed to be running a trade route for William Claiborne from uh, where William Claiborne is at the at the very base of that here at his uh, his plantation um, in Kikitan to Kent Island. But on the way, uh, he stopped by the Eastern Shore where someone else asked him to run some goods uh, for, as actually a plantation, a female plantation owner for her uh, all the way uh, to the north. And that resulted in a court case actually between the two planters, uh, between William Claiborne and the Littletons uh, about where Constantine had actually gone. And uh, he probably took on that job just to uh, maybe make a little money on the side or maybe even um, maybe even there was some kind of coercive relationship there. But he did it without Claiborne knowing because he had so much mobility as the servant to uh, a trader. Uh, I also want my students to know how complicated the system was in the 17th century, uh, particularly compared to when the lines between servitude and freedom really harden uh, later on, between slavery and freedom really harden later on. There are indentured servants who uh, work for a set period of years generally, and then enslaved people, then there are of course tenants and freemen. But there are also people who are in between, and that's something that historians are really starting to focus on in a different way, where people don't have an indenture or are sued for their freedom and then find out that they're enslaved, or some, some sort of um, in between where we don't really know particularly if they are enslaved or if they are free or if there is an expiration on their term. And uh, that has created some problems for when we're trying to describe all of these different ways in which people uh, were bonded in the Chesapeake and we're trying to put it into a data set. So the people that are coming through are from a wide variety of identities. Uh, that includes captured prisoners from West Africa, but also the, the continent um, of North America. And that also includes young children, women, uh, people of all sorts of language backgrounds, um, and including people who are educated, people who are not political dissidents, all kinds of things. 
And they get here through the head right system. And this is an example of that uh, that's listed here. So this person who uh, is listed at the top, um, Deverax Brown, uh, received 1,850 acres of land, 50 apiece for bringing all of these people in. And that starts in 1618 and is fueled by uh, the tobacco boom. And that also coincides with the, uh, the first Africans arriving uh, here in uh, Virginia. So there are lots of ways that uh, people also um, are, are put into this system that are illegal as well. Um, one of my um, favorite documents that I found very early on in my uh, doctoral dissertation work was this uh, the center uh, pamphlet in which a man tries to sell his wife into indenture in lieu of divorce and then finds that he is actually the one that ends up on the boat in the end. <laughs> um, but it was a it was the reason that that is uh, that is here is because it's a very real problem where people are spirited or taken onto ships, um, perhaps even uh, under the influence of alcohol or a misconception of what's happening, something like that. But it's important to take these people seriously. Uh, they uh, if they even if they arrive as children, they develop skills as diplomats, allies, farmers soldiers, they develop uh, understandings of what the Chesapeake is, they develop understandings of the law and politics enough to sue for their freedom in some cases, especially in the case of indigenous people. And they also learn to network beyond the plantation that they're on. So our goals here are to uh, recreate some of these networks. We think we can also, because the cases of women running away and children running away are so few and far between, we hope we can aggregate that data to maybe find something meaningful if we can bring them all together in one place and to find patterns in relation to law and changing ideas about race uh, using natural language processing. Uh, we also hope to provide uh, accompanying geospatial data and to sort of define the outer limits of what running away in the 17th century looked like in terms of strategy um, and in terms of goals. And I think um, I will, uh, if, if anyone has more specific questions about this, I'll leave it here. Uh, but I understand I'm, I'm running a little short on, um, on time and I, I just uh, wanted to end um, wanted to end with some of the challenges um, that we are, uh, we are running, uh, I was about to say running away with, <laughs> that's not right. <laughs> we, are, uh, we are dealing with currently as we uh, learn more about what running away means. Oftentimes because the court records are burnt, we maybe don't have the sort of statistical significance that we would like. Um, we're also, uh, we're wanting our students and people who are interested to help us uh, uh, crowdsource like transcription and things like that, but that's very hard with old documents. And then um, the last thing, you know, is that uh, there are all these kinds of people like I just talked about who defy categorization that fits neatly into a data set. But it is still really, really important work that we're excited to take on, particularly in partnership with our students and uh, people in Eastern Virginia who we have these relationships with already um, and who really care about local history and uh, descendant, um, being a descendant and, and being a responsible descendant um, in this place. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you all so much.
Um, have, can you talk a little bit about the uh, Spanish efforts at settlement at the like the Ayacan mission, like, like in 1570, and how that fits into what you've been talking about and interested in? You know, um, that's not really the focus of my work. I mentioned it briefly, but only in the sense. Oh, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> my apologies. Um, in my book, I mentioned it briefly, but only in the. It's not the. I have not like done first-hand research on that because that's not where my language skills are. Um, but I mention it in the sense that it does um, create fear among uh, English people who know that the Spanish had been there previously. Um, and that is plays a key part in the war of rumors between Virginia and Maryland, because remember Maryland is Catholic and Spain is Catholic. And so there's this sense that um, there might be like a little bit of collusion there. Um, so it, it plays a really big role in the war for rumors. So um, the whole country gets into alarm because someone starts a rumor that the Spanish are coming. Um, and there's no, no particular reason that that would cause alarm had they not already been there in, in recent decades. Um, but that's really the only way that it, it enters into my work and maybe even not that settlement specifically. Um, but yes, thank you for that question. <laughs> you mentioned the phrase natural language processing. What exactly does that mean? And does it have anything to do with um, AI? I mean, can it be used? It does, yes. So natural language processing is, uh, first of all, the purview of my co-principal investigator who does this sort of work. But the idea is that we will have full transcripts of all of the, the records that relate specifically to people who have escaped uh, servitude and slavery and are caught. And then um, basically the, the different kinds of words that are used over time change over the course of the 17th century. And so we can kind of chart those changes, whether it's the ways in which punishments are described or um, the ways in which, especially as the runaway laws change, or the ways in which slavery and freedom are described, the, the act of running away, for example, like if someone, you know, is called um, like lazy, or or if it's just that they're, they're repeated runaway, um, or that they're disobedient, things like that. The language around that does matter as slavery and servitude becomes racialized. That's the idea. Thank you for your presentation. Uh, my family for uh, nearly 70 years has had property in a, a, a very simple cottage on a, a narrow peninsula that hangs off of Middlesex County, a place called Stove Point. It was originally called Store Point, but someone misread it as Stove, and it has become, I think there was a naval store on that point at one point, at, at years, you know, probably uh, 200 years ago. But I'm curious, if if we were to, uh, my nephews and great nephews and whatnot, uh, nephew, uh, were to dig down in that soil, where we're on the Piankatank side, the Chesapeake is right on, it's very near, you were talking about two minutes to, to get to the water. If, I feel like indigenous people would have been living on that little peninsula three or 400 years ago. Um, if we were to dig down, is there any possibility that 
uh, we would find Indian uh, or indigenous uh, artifacts and how far down would we have to dig? We'd probably hit water before we hit the artifacts. But anyway, I'm just curious about that. I think it's my ethical obligation to tell you to please not do that. <laughs> um, if I, I have found that in talking to folks, so this is my oral historian hat, not my archaeology hat, that folks who live in a place that has been occupied by indigenous people know it. Um, they find things all the time. Um, and oftentimes, if you do find something and you find, you know, or a great many things, um, it is it is the right thing to do to call the state um, and just check it out or just to call the state and ask if you're curious. That's what I would do. She's the state archaeologist is actually lovely. She's really nice. Um, so I, I would do that. Um, but you might be right. Um, another thing, too, is that the coastline oftentimes changes over time. So a lot of places are underwater um, that, you know, were not previously, particularly inside of the bay. And so those lines may have changed um, as, as it goes. But I would call the state if I were you. And that's that must be. A, I'm not looking, you know, but I am. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, I, uh, I think that's a lovely place to live though. And, and I appreciate that you recognize that it is native land too, right? A wonderful presentation. Thank you so much. So, uh, uh, putting on your hat as the oral historian, uh, and through your vast research, what was your one big aha moment? Aha moment. Yeah, where it was like, wow, this happened. I have Thanks. those all the time. <laughs> I mean, everybody is different, you know, and, and people shock me on a regular basis. But I, um, well, one one moment that really sticks with me is, um, I mean, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with Matthews County. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a crapper that I regularly work with there who is the youngest Crabber in Matthews County, and he would not want me to tell you his exact age, but he's in his 50s. Um, when the majority of people who used to work in that county worked on the water, um, or if not, they farmed. And um, he doesn't have any children himself. And he said to me, there are so many guts and ditches in this place that I know the name of, and his family's been on the same piece of property for 300 years. Um, and when I'm gone, like those names will be gone. Um, and he, you know, he represents a, a settler background. Like he, you know, his family did colonize that place. Um, but it was a moment of realizing how much is lost when native people are displaced from a particular area. I mean, if you look at the map of John Smith, we have just the place names. We don't have uh, just at the names of the towns, just the names of the districts, because that's what the English people wanted. We don't have the names of the places that were like intimate and important, you know, that were within arm's reach for a native person or what they meant. Um, so uh, as an oral historian, and that's me personally, you know, that that's a that's a moment that sits in my sits with me. Yeah. Thank you. Did I understand you to say that 50,000 native people had been enslaved uh, over what period? Um, between in, in North America in the 17th and 18th centuries, I believe. Okay. And that's a that's an estimate that comes from, I think, Alan Galay and Crystalline Shuffleland. Um, 
We're talking about the Indian slave trade. And um, I assume that began for English speaking people, at least in Virginia. Hmm. I mean, I guess it would in the sense that um, that people were taken captive and put to work in the 17th century. And so I would say that those people are enslaved before the start of really like the, the capital of that in the late, the early 18th century would have been Carolina. Okay, thank you. I wanna make sure that I'm right though. So uh, Alan Galea and Crystal and Sheffield have the data on that. And there's an Encyclopedia of Virginia article um, and that's easily accessible. Um, I wanted to thank you, but I also grew up in New Mexico. So the Spanish were enslaving indigenous people in that area too. Oh, absolutely. No, we're just so, talking about the right South. Right here, but anyway, okay. Yes, no, 100%. I apologize. Oh, no, I it's meant okay. this English speaking, yeah, North America, all like that it. part. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Sorry.